Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ravinda with Mingles on Network Radio, bringing you another evening of great music and great guests. And today's guest, Mr. Earl Johnson Jr., will be visiting us to discuss his music and promote his latest, uh, Juicy and uh, talk to us a little bit about his other projects that he has going on, and we're going to welcome him on the show today. Earl, are you here now? Hey, Earl, are you in the show today? Uh, Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you very well. We were having some uh, issues logging in for some reason. I know they're upgrading today, so I apologize if you have to wait a couple minutes. But welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. No problem. Always uh, glad to have someone that can produce some wonderful music for our ears. And um, you have for quite some time. Um, you have a very, very well, um, you know, versed uh, resume. I was checking that out earlier. And you've you've had a lot of experience with you know, a lot of artists and helping them out with their music. So can you give us an idea of... Um, you know what? What it was that made you want to go into this whole music composing, um, uh, you know, line of work? Well, um, I really have um, the utmost respect for um, composers and you know songwriters and producers um, in general um, because it's it's it kind of takes the craft of music to an entire different level um, up when you can actually create something that someone else is going to interpret and play. Um, there's definite merit to um, learning how to play your instrument and being, you know, a consummate professional and, and knowing how to play anything that someone puts in front of you. But it's a, it's a whole different level when you actually have the task before you to actually create something that's aesthetically pleasing to people, you know. So um, that was my goal. And I'm, I'm always trying to push myself to the limit, so... Um, that was the original thought to, okay, I need to start writing something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's go back to in time to when you, you know, were first getting involved in the whole music world and give us an idea of, you know, what, what you started off doing. Oh, wow. I started playing piano um, at nine years old. Um, my parents bought a piano because my mother played when she was in middle school. And so um, um, she wanted to get back into, you know, her her childhood instrument. And so they bought this piano, and six free piano lessons came with the purchase. And so they asked me um, if I wanted the lessons. And I remember I was, um, you know, watching uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. I'll never forget this. And, you know, Schroeder was there all hunched over the piano trying to impress Lucy, you know. (laughs) They're playing his, you know, I think it was Beethoven or something. And I remember turning around to the television, and I pointed to it. I said, can I sound like that? And they said, well, if you practice, you know, it's up to you. But, you know, if you work hard, you can sound like that. And I said, hmm, okay. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> Never looked back. <laughs> so so then what, what kind of educational background did you have for music? Oh, well, I, um, um, like I said, I, I took private lessons for 10 years, and then um, went to um, Penn State on a partial academic scholarship. Um, 
and I found when I got there that I could actually play as well, if not better, than a lot of the um, music instructors that they had at the university at the time. And so they told me if I really wanted to take music seriously, I had to transfer somewhere else. So um, after my sophomore year, I went into business administration and tried that thing, and, it, you know, it just wasn't a, the right fit. I could have done it, but, you know, <laughs> my heart, music kept pulling on my heartstrings, you know. And so I, I ultimately transferred to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and that's where I, I graduated. I earned a degree in film scoring um, with the minor in um, you know, arranging and orchestration. Wow, that sounds marvelous. And so now was it, you know, interesting, I'm sure it was, but was it like uh, overwhelming for you, you know, getting into something like that? You know, a lot of people don't go that far, but, you know, you had goals ahead of you. Was it, was it, did it seem challenging for you at any time? Oh, well, it was definitely challenging. I mean, just, um, you know, financially, socially, musically, uh, just any category you can you can pick because I had never been to New England before. You know, uh, I was 19 years old, you know, <laughs> so far away from home for the first time. You know, because Penn State was just an hour and a half or two hours up the road, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm from Pennsylvania originally, but, you know, going up to New England was a whole different experience and, you know, then, like I said, the financial part of it, I, I wasn't on scholarship at Berkeley. And then just to be thrown in such a culturally rich environment where everybody was striving for excellence. And, you know, when you come from a non-musical situation into, you know, just a situation where music just permeates every aspect of your existence, it, you know, it takes you back a little bit, you know because I was no longer the big fish, you know. Everybody could play. <laughs> so it really, it, 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 you know, it was like a kick in the pants, like, okay, you know, you have to get on the stick here and, you know, swim with the big fish, you know. Either you're, you know, a shark or you become shark food. <laughs> <laughs> so. I know that that happens to a lot of people when they, you know, they they start off fresh and they, you know, they know that they're really good and then they get involved with the other people and then it's, sometimes you kind of get a little, you know, uh, uh, hesitant on what you can actually do. Now, when you had to work next to those really, you know, well-experienced veteran uh, educators, you know, how did that feel? Well, it felt really, really great. I mean, I was, um, I felt privileged and honored to um, to have so many great musicians around me um, who could really you know, push me, I could push them, you know, just in terms of what was even possible, you know. Um, and the, the coursework was one set of education, but I got an entirely different set of education just from the other students who were around because once class was done, say like around 5.30, 6 o'clock, then the nighttime education started because everyone was having jam sessions um, in the um, ensemble rooms and practice rooms. Everyone was writing and comparing their compositions, and then there were the, the local gigs at all the um, watering holes around town where you actually got to try out your stuff in a real-time situation. Um, so it was really just an, an amazing time, you know. Um, and I just feel so honored because I had people like Layla Hathaway, who was a, a classmate, Roy Hargrove, who was a classmate, um, Josh Redman was attending Harvard 
which was right down the street. You know, I had um, Antonio Hart, um, Delphio Marcellus was there. And so Winton and Branford would come through from time to time and just sit in, you know. So it, it was just truly amazing, you know. Wow. So now you, you, you've you worked with a lot of, you know, famous people that in the music industry. Um, how did you get to you know, get involved with arranging their music and give us some names that you've worked with. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I hope I don't forget anybody because, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you understand being from the East Coast, it's like once you do something, okay, it's done. What's the next thing, you know? <laughs> so I have to remind <laughs> myself, yeah, I worked with him too. Well, um, uh, I've worked with Brian McKnight, um, Patty Austin, Stevie Wonder, um, Gladys Knight, Shante Moore, uh, Winton Marcellus, um, Gerald Albright, uh, let me see, Jonathan Butler, uh, Brand New Heavies, Casey and JoJo, um, Kenny Lattimore, uh, Layla Hathaway, of course, um, Tina Marie, uh, let's see, Sounds of Blackness. I know I'm going to forget somebody. <laughs> um, my, my, my very first gig was Walter Beasley because he was my um, ear training and arranging instructor at Berkeley. And a month after I graduated, um, I saw him. I was walking down the street in Boston, and I bumped into him, and he asked me what were my plans now that I was finished. And I said, man, I'm moving to New York. I'm going to be this great jazz pianist, and, you know, I'm going to take over the world, you know. And he says, well, before you take over the world, how would you like to be in my band? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he <laughs> So, um, and then that, oh, that was sounded, yeah, it was great. That sounded was, very exciting. Like when you when you when you heard someone ask for you to work with them like that, you know, like were you prepared for all that? Oh, definitely. You know, because my philosophy has always been: if you stay ready, you never have to get ready. You know, and so I, that's the opportunity I was waiting for. And you know, um, Berkeley was very. Um, good in a sense where they did a lot of, um, they brought a lot of industry professionals in to do um, symposiums and master classes and lectures and things like that. And I had already been in contact several times with the president of Mercury Records at the time, which was Walter's label. Um, it's a guy, I'm sorry, Ed Eckstein, which was, um, you know, famous jazz vocalist Billy Eckstein's son. And um, so... When Walter hired me, um, he ended up taking me down to the office in New York there and went in and says, hey, Ed, remember this guy? And, you know, it was just a big, like, they, I was like their little brother. They took me under their wing, you know. Um, and so a few months after that, Ed had another new artist coming out that no one has heard of before, this guy named Brian McKnight. And I'm like, who's that? <laughs> he said, yeah, he's pretty good. I think he's going to go somewhere. Would you like to play for him? I'm like, oh, well, is he good? <laughs> and little did I know, you know. And so that's how I ended up getting Brian's gig, and it just kind of snowballed from there, you know. So just um, a lot of um, uh, recommendation and just personal relationships have had me go from one situation to the next. And then just a natural progression, once they knew that I was a writer, they just had me start making arrangements for the live tours um, and then writing for the CDs, and it just 
kept going from there. Wow. So that's a, you know, that's a great experience right there. And um, <clears throat> and I I guess, you know, when you did hear about, you know, the famous people that you were going to be working with, you know, you probably had a, a certain feeling about getting into that. Did it make you nervous, you know, getting started on working with them? Well, no, I, I, um, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but I don't really get nervous. Um, the only time I could really think of when I got nervous was when I was still in my teens and I did this classical, because I used to compete for all the classical recitals, and we did this classical recital, and I remember I walked on stage, put my music up there, and someone had opened a door backstage, and right in the middle of this long, it was a piece by Rachmaninoff, I hadn't memorized the piece, you know, against my instructor's, you know, wishes. Um, and while I'm playing, someone opened the door backstage and a big gust came across the stage and blew the music off of the stand, off the piano. And I'm like, wow. Oh. So that's the only time I can really say I panicked or got nervous. But, you know, after I got through that, I was like, okay, what could be worse than that? <laughs> so, and then when you meet these all these people, People, I mean, they're they're famous and all that. You see them on TV, but they're, most of them, I'd say even the majority of everyone I've worked with has been really, really cool, down-to-earth people. You know, you see that they're just, you know, regular people just like us who just happen to get lucky and get a good break and had a nice run, you know. And that's how they've always treated me, so it's, it's been a, a pretty comfortable situation. Wow. So now when you... Uh... When you got started, were you were you asked by them personally to be, you know, just limited to them? Did they ask to just have you to call them whenever they needed something like that? Oh yeah, especially uh, Walter because he it felt as though he was, uh, you know, my my uh, first professional situation, which he was, and I always had the utmost respect for him for that, and so much more because I learned so much from him in and out of the classroom, but. He wanted, you know, because at, at one point I was playing for Walter and Brian simultaneously. So when one wasn't working, you know, um, I would go with the other one. And then they did a promotion, a couple promotional tours together. So I was, you know, pulling double duty there. And then um, a situation came up to where I had an opportunity to play for Najee. And mm-hmm. it was right while we were recording Walter's um, second project that he was working on since I was with him. Because um, I had written um, the title cut for Private Time. That's actually mine. And so he wanted me to do a follow-up. And right in the middle of the recording, I got this call to do some gigs with uh, with Najee. And so, of course, I took it. And Walter didn't like that, so he fired me. <laughs> <laughs> but I ended up getting fired by him. He hired me back, you know, um, like maybe six or seven months later. Before it was all said and done, out of the six-and-a-half-year period where I worked with Walter, I, I was fired three times <laughs> because he didn't want me to work with anybody else, you know. I said, man, wow. I have to. <laughs> That's right. You just have to. I mean, mm-hmm. he probably realized that later. <laughs> well, I, I, later I, he never said it to me, but he's, I heard him say in an interview that I was actually one of his favorite students, and he rode me a lot harder because he saw the potential. And I said, wow, that would have been nice to know back then. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, so. 
So um, what other types of projects have you worked on, you know, outside of just arranging, um, you know, other artists' music? Oh, wow. I've, um, well, um, like I said, my degree is in film scoring, so I've done um, dramatic underscores for film and television product, projects. Um, I've collaborated with Marcus Miller, um, with Steve Tyrell. Marcus, we did, like, uh, that movie called Two Can Play That Game uh, with uh, Vivica Fox, um, those, those folks. Um, I did a show on Showtime called Links um, under Steve Tyrell. But see, both of those were like ghostwriting situations, and so it was kind of hard to, to break out of that nest and, and kind of, you know, do my own thing from the composing standpoint as well. So I've done a film called Living with Faith. I did another film called With or Without You. And, you know, I've been just busy composing um, for film and TV as well as just doing arrangements for other artists too. And then um, I have actually four more CD projects for myself um, on deck, just ready to go. They've already been written. I just have to start recording them now. So I'll jump back in the lab um, probably this summer and uh, start knocking those out. You know, one will be an arrangement um, CD of cover tunes, similar to what um, Seal just released. He did a phenomenal CD where he's doing you know, some old um, Al Green and James Brown and um, Denise Williams, just all these great tunes. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to do one kind of in that vein, um, my personal spin on a lot of popular cover tunes that everybody would know and love. And then I have another follow-up project um, for, um, you know, in the same vein as this, my current CD, which is Juicy. I'm going to do another one like that. Um, I'm a bebopper at heart, so I love jazz piano. So I have to do a solo jazz um, piano project and a straight-ahead jazz project with a full ensemble. Wow. I'll be pretty busy here. <laughs> oh, yes, you will. I actually had a chance to go to the first show of the Latin Meets Jazz uh, music series in Philly last night at the oh, wow. uh, Philadelphia Clef Club. Um, that was hosted by James Dennis, and um, it was featuring Pablo Batista, uh, Clifford Adams, and uh, Pablo's group, uh, Chabasson. Uh, it was the most awesome, uh, you know, experience. I mean, they were just playing so well, had a nice turnout. You know, uh, I would I would be so happy to continue going to that, if, especially if those guys were there. Although they're going to have some other people like John Blake Jr. and oh, um, yeah. Annette Sutler there. Um, those two will be there. Have you ever worked with those guys at all? No, I know who they are, but I haven't had the pleasure of working with them yet. You know, I would love to, though. love the opportunity. Um, it's always good to um, to connect with, with other cats who are, are doing it on a, a very high professional level, you know. Oh yes, mm-hmm. I I mean I found it to be really great. Now, have you ever worked with a, you know, like a large group like that on stage? Oh yes, I've done big band stuff. Um, I've actually um, um, did some gigs with Winch, and that was like a, a pretty big unit uh, when I worked with Winton Marcellus. Um, and then I've also done the play circuit. Interestingly enough, I um, did um, Ain't Misbehaving, a couple different tours of Ain't Misbehaving. Um, which, as you know, you all know, it's, it's that's like a tour de force for the piano because it's the piano is the only instrument that's on stage. It's wall to wall, you know, music of Fats Waller, and he was just an absolutely phenomenal composer and pianist, you know. 
Um, and then I did another one called Celebrations and African Odyssey. Did another play called Thea Trilogy, which is a big ensemble cast, you know, when you're doing a lot of, uh, you know, the, uh, the orchestra pit type of um, performance. Okay. So um, is it is it just as exciting performing like that as it is to watch it? Because I went backstage and it was a little bit confusing for me, but it felt better just to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I, I feel like, um, you know, a, a schizophrenic sometimes because you, you're like different people depending on what the situation is. You know, so if I'm playing, um, you know, in a play situation, it's very fun and I get into that because I love watching the actors and it's it's very similar to um, doing the film scoring thing where you have to interpret a scene musically and uh, pull that emotion out you know of the audience through a subtle interpretation of the emotion well a play you're doing that in real time you know in front of a live audience so that's what's great about that but then if I'm on stage with like then it's really cool because, you know, just to have the energy that's flying off of the crowd that he's pulling out of them or, you know, it, it's those different aspects of performance are always um, so amazing to me. Wow. So now um, when you do, when you, when you prepare to do something really, you know, really extra creative with the film scoring. How do you prepare yourself for that? You know, how do you come up with those ideas that you put together? Well, I drink um, 3.7 ounces of milk. And then, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just have a crazy imagination. You know, um, I, I don't really... Um, once again, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but I have no shortage of ideas as far as just being just out there sometimes, you know. And so um, I kind of just go with the flow and, and, and let the uh, – I just try and channel the creative energy that flows through me at the time. And, you know, I can usually, you know, if I don't hit a bullseye, I get pretty close to being on the target at least, you know. Um, but I love that creative process. It's just there's no other feeling like it to – be able to um, pull something out of my own head that somebody else would like to hear, you know. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that you're that creative because we need a lot of people like you to teach some of the you know the younger generation about creativity and you know not sampling all the time and just trying to work on those natural talents that you have, you know, to come up with yeah. your project. And do you find that a lot of Young artists today are doing such a thing, you know, like um, just not even trying to come up with anything original. Oh, definitely, because um, the um, the record uh, label industry part of, of this whole game really kind of drives that, and they, in a, in a lot of ways, kind of promote that, um, and it stifles creativity because everyone is trying to chase that moving train. So whatever is hot at the time, everybody tries to sound like that. And then, you know, the second part is when all of the music programs in the school systems have been systematically removed. So now you you no longer have people learning how to play the violin or learning how to play the trumpet or, you know, so everything is kind of turntable-based. 
you know, say they want to sample or they want to, you know, just come up with some regurgitated form of something that's already been created as opposed to, you know, the age of the bands when people would get together and just jam because, you know, one friend played guitar, another friend played drums, another friend played the bass, and they would get together and see what they would come up with. You don't really have that now with um, younger, um, the younger generation. And I would love to see it return because that's what really drove such great music, you know. That's right. And um, the way I um there there is a lot of that going on in what they call the underground because a lot of people don't get the same recognition as um, those people that do manufactured work. And um, I've, I've visited a lot of shows and seen a lot of, you know, bands I've never even heard of before. And they're, they're playing their instruments, you know, just like any any professional, anybody from, you know, back in the day that when we didn't have all this extra, you know, special recording equipment. And um, they just say that sometimes it's pretty difficult to get into the actual business on, you know, and become um, well-known on the radio because they want to make it so easy. You know, when they so they get a, a manufacturer person, they can just you know whip up real quick and make some money and keep going. Do you see that actually happen in your experience? Most definitely, and you know I hate it. You know that's right. I said it. <laughs> I I can't stand that, especially with um what's that one company um uh, broadcast architecture? They call themselves B A. That's a company that it's like a consulting firm. All these different labels and came up with this formula um, to evaluate music from uh, from a marketing standpoint. They said what um, companies who buy advertising space on these different radio stations, uh, they really want to have their songs played in a corporate environment. So what songs would be really conducive to a corporate environment? And they came up with all these rules. Oh, you can only have so many bars in your hook. You can't have vocals here. You can't use this particular instrument for a lead. You can't do this. You can't do that. And it really kind of watered down and, and just killed the creativity out of the music because most people who wanted to fit that format and get any type of airplay started trying to conform their creativity to these rules, which has nothing wow. to do with music. You know, it, just, it was really crazy. So, um, you know, I I really hope that um, the underground trend takes on a new wave and we start taking our music back to how it used to be. Real players, real music, you know, everybody doing something original. So, I think that would be a good thing to see. You know, it was a, a great feeling, you know, watching that live music and watching, it, you know, the different characteristics of each, you know, um, musician. Because it, when you're here on the radio, you don't know who's doing what. You know, you can't really feel it. But mm-hmm. when you see it live, you know, you can see what they do. Like uh, Pablo did some type of thing with his condo, congos where he put his elbow on the drum and oh, yeah. with one arm and then he, then he used his hand to do something else. And I'm like... What is that about? You know, I I think he was trying to make a certain sound or something, but it was just so interesting to see that. And you wouldn't have never seen that, you know, on the radio and if you know or anywhere else if you don't go to a live show. Mm-hmm. So you know, do you think um, more artists today that don't really use that much live music should try to get back into having that as their background music as opposed to you know a preset 
uh, CD track? Oh, definitely. And it's funny because a lot of the um, the um, icons in the hip-hop world are really moving towards using live bands. You know, I know DMX, uh, Snoop Dogg, all them, they have live bands behind them now, you know. And it really kind of got started with the roots. I mean, they're like, you know, <laughs> the the pinnacle. You know, that band is so hot. Um, but that's, I think you're you're absolutely right because so much is lost when you try and do everything um, in a studio environment or sample or use a drum machine or, you know, not have those live souls around you, you know. And then it, it really kind of fosters a whole other level of creativity, too, when you have other um, – live bands doing the same type of thing and putting their spin on it, you know. And I always think back to, you know, I wonder what it was like to, to be in a situation where you had Earth, Wind & Fire and Confunction and Cameo all on the same bill. And none of them, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire didn't sound like Cameo. Cameo didn't sound like Confunction, you know. So when you, you, as soon as you heard them, you knew who that was, you know. Right. So I um, the hip-hop artists are really on the cutting edge as far as being the closest to bringing that type of situation back with live musicians. I would hope so because, you know, when I hear a rapper on the radio, you know, and I, you know, sometimes I, I like the song, sometimes I don't, but once I hear them live, I don't know what it is they're saying. It's all jumbled because they're just yelling. It's like they never learned how to perform live where it's melodic, you know, because yeah. why would you... You know, just get out there and just yell. Nobody knows. You could be anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could be anybody on that stage, you know, because you're not doing anything special to sound anything like the CD. Have you ever experienced anything like that, you know, like been to any shows that you just didn't feel connected to the artist? Um, yeah. I mean, I've seen a, a lot because there's it's, – it's interesting because um, – a lot of people in this country, in particular, treat the music industry like that forbidden fruit. Everybody wants a little piece of that fame or that fortune or perceived fortune that they see they can get in the music industry. So everyone tries to to get in some kind of way, whether or not they have talent, you know. And then they try and take, once again, the hip-hop model and use all these hype men, have 50 people up on stage, just because, you know, this one guy was in his math class when they were in tenth grade, now he's on stage <laughs> with you know. Um so you have a lot of that going on I that I see. But um you know, I still I, I, I gotta applaud their effort though, you know, so I'm not mad at their hustles. Like, okay, you can get it, brother, go on here. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I know, I guess you gotta do what you gotta do, but you know. In the long run, once people see other people, you know, doing something a little bit more different, you know, they yeah. might wonder why this person isn't doing the same thing, you know. It'll come yeah. to be something like that. Mhm. And once again, it's really because of the labels, because they will only find a certain look or a certain type of person. And, and really, the whole reason why they try and find younger and younger artists is so that they can throw you know, a little bit of money in front of them and get that wow factor like, ooh, you know. I mean, you're 18 or 19 years old and someone throws $50,000 in front of you. I mean, you know, that'll flip most adults out. But imagine being 18 and having that kind of money thrown at you. Oh, you know, absolutely. But, then, but they don't tell you that it's a loan. 
They just say, here. And they're like, wow, oh, I'm rich. Oh, I'm going to buy my boy this, and I'm going to buy my mama that TV, and I'm going to get this, I'm going to And then they find out after the fact that they just kind of signed the next three years of their life away, you know, and they're actually in the hole, you know, but the industry is kind of driven to where they, they set up that type of scenario over and over. And really, you know, once you get past a certain age or at least you go through certain experiences, you learn from that and then you're, you're more aware and in tune of all the pitfalls of you, so you step a little more cautiously, you know. Um, and the industry kind of shies away from people who know better because then they can't get their hustle on and continue to do what they've been doing since the, the early 40s and 50s. Now, that's exactly what I've always thought because I noticed that they, they seem to always get somebody who's young and inexperienced and doesn't have any management. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me like they can just step in and make it look all good, like the you know, just like you're joining the, the armed forces because you know the reserves and the army, um, the navy, they all do the same thing. All those guys come in uh, with all these great gifts and everything, and they make you think, oh, it's, it's easy. You can do this. You can do that. And I noticed that they probably do the same thing with these young artists and have so much control over them and don't explain everything on what they're going to experience very shortly. You know, um, now, did you ever go to any kind of management or label, you know, and and just, you know, go through anything like that? Well, um, no, fortunately. I've actually always been on the other side um, after all those things have already been in place with the different artists. But as far as my career, I, I know better. And so... Um, I've actually had a lot of different artist uh, management firms approaching me now, especially with the success of, of Juicy and the attention that it's starting to get worldwide. They're coming out the woodwork at me and throwing everything but the kitchen sink at me to try and get that wow factor. And I go, nah, bro. <laughs> no, thank you know, and I go, what about this and what about that and what about this? And they're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. This guy knows too much. So then they leave me, they leave me alone. You know, I mean, I would love to have a good manager, but I'm not going to wait for a good manager. I'm going to get down this road myself, you know. And and a lot of artists are starting to do the same thing. You know, Evo Bryson did his own management thing for years. I know um, Kenny Lattimore and Shante Moore are doing their own management now. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of artists. The trend is starting to move towards, you know, artists taking more control, the reins of control in their own hands for their careers. You know. Yes, I think that's very important. You can't give up. I mean, I understand not knowing a lot about it, but, you know, it's always good to do research when you step into any type of venture, no matter what it is, because, yeah. you know, the wrong people coming to your life could really think, turn things around for you, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, they get so, so excited at the prospect of being signed to a label because they think that that is going to give them the fame and the fortune and you know, all the the great life, but they don't realize that a record deal is basically nothing more than a big loan because they sign right. you, you know, they'll give you a little bonus, but you have to pay that back with through your royalties. They give you, um, you know, a recording budget, they'll say 300 to 500000 on average, um, a lot smaller now because of the current economy, but, you know, they'll give you a recording budget, say 300000 Your record has to make that back. 
then they start chopping into, um, oh, they'll give you tour support, you know, maybe. <laughs> and then you have to shoot a video. So that's another 150000 for the video. Um, and then, you know, they want to do all the, the in-store signing and give free giveaways and radio promotions and you know, CDs you have to give to the stations for that. They charge the artists for all of that, and they don't tell you that up front. And then they'll hold 33% of your royalties back for broken um, shipments, you know, where CDs get broken during shipment, uh, and they call it a breakage fee. But the breakage fee really relates to LPs, to, to records because records used to break getting shipped, you know, and so they still have that in current contracts, although no one is pressing records anymore. Everything's on CD and, you know, DVD for the videos, or they're just going straight digital to the Internet. So so why are the artists still paying breakage fees? Well, that's very interesting to know. Hmm. Yeah, and it's buried way down there on page, you know, 78 of the contract in small little teeny print, and so... People who don't pay attention and read everything before they sign, you know, they sign all of that and agree. Because when you sign, that means you're agreeing to all of that. And so once you sign, I mean, it's a done deal. And then your record actually has to make back all of that money that they've put up on your behalf before you even get another dime. So that little advance that they gave you that you already spent up buying a red car and a white car and then one for your your cousin and then you went out partying and all this stuff. And now that money's gone and you don't see any more for the next two years, you know. So that's why you have situations where some of these artists are, are selling gold, which is 500,000 copies, or platinum, which is a million copies, but they're still, you know, living, quote, unquote, regular like everybody else. They have one-bedroom apartments. They're not really, you know, they look good on TV, but most of that stuff is rented anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I wanted to um, go ahead and play one of your songs now. I'm going to play some more later, but um, I wanted to go into the title song, Juicy, and just, um, you know, let us have a relaxing moment with that. And when we come back, um, we have um, our co-host, Nashiba, on the line. Say hello, Nashiba. Hello. How are you? You know me in the mute thing every now and then. I was listening. <laughs> So, <laughs> hey, you know, it's, it's terrible. Hello, Earl. Hi, how are you? Good to talk to you again. Pretty good, and I love the fact that you're spreading your knowledge on the music industry and your integrity and the music in and of itself. So I'll be on hold to enjoy some more of the music. Oh, great. Sounds good. Uh-huh. All right, let me go ahead and hit this song. This is, I like this song. I really do. again, because I'm not sure what that was. <laughs> uh, I know we're having some issues with um, blog talks, like uploading, you know, uh, the way they do their upload is a little bit prehistoric, 
in my oh. opinion. That's not the word for it because it should be done after not midnight, not when prime traffic is still moving. I don't get right. That. I, I, I don't get it either. I don't. Don't let me don't go like there. And I'm a technical person, too, please. <laughs> Nothing but the devil. We don't push, push right on. Go now, that. and didn't we do that the other night too? We sure did, honey. Don't feel bad because I couldn't load a couple of his tracks, unfinished business. So just all of them were so good. I think it was the size of the file in that one. File type is correct, on I just think it's the file, file. I think that was the issue I was having earlier too, but uh, I tried to convert it in, an, in another, you know, way That's so that I'm it, do, it could play. I, I wanted up because I'm going to randomly play stuff. Four twelve did that. And Juicy did that. And I believe it's the size. It's not the format. So I'm going to try Juicy again. Let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Too too big. Yeah. I'm pretty wow. convinced that that's what it is. Wow. Well, wow. we'll still keep working on it. Um, I had a, a couple other songs on there, too, so... Hopefully they weren't too. I mean, they don't tell us, you know, that you can't have a certain well, yeah, amount it's, it's of. Yeah, you know. it's not definitively defined that there's a size restriction. If there is, then let somebody know that so you can adjust to that. Don't, like, wait to the last minute and kind of find out, you know. Because I had been checking it. It showed that it was fine. I, they had a show. It's like, oh, I don't think like, I want to play today. <laughs> 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 but you can always play possibilities. My God. <laughs> Oh, That's yeah. Oh, uh, you can always play that, honey. Go on and play it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, while I'm trying to work that out, I'm going to um, ask you, Earl, to um, – I'm going to run down the line of the people that you work with on your resume. And um, uh, it's a lot of people. So just for our listeners – who don't look at this resume, I want to just go ahead and read out those names. We did mention before Brian McKnight. We also have Patty Austin, Kenny Lattimore, Gladys Knight. We did mention Shante Moore. We have Al Jarreau, Jeffrey Osborne, Smokey Robinson, Brand New Heavies. We did mention Wenton, Stevie Wonder, Jonathan Butler, Billy Paul, who is going to be a guest on the show in a couple of weeks, uh, Chris Body, uh, Sounds of Blackness. I have missed them tremendously. Kevon Edmonds, Tina Marie, my ultimate favorite ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> Roy Hargrove, Yolanda Adams, Dave Hollister, and I'm trying to get him on the show too. Katero, Mark Whitfield. Loretta Devine, who is a beauty, and I love her. And later we did mention, and she has something new out now, too, mm-hmm. Wayne Henderson, R. Kelly, does a wonderful show. Javier, I'm not sure who that is, uh, but you can tell me later. Brothers Johnson, I grew up just jamming to their music, and oh, it's unbelievable that you work with them. Uh, Beyonce. And Chaka Khan. Mm-hmm. So now you have a tremendous amount of variants in all these artists, you know, from old school to, I, I always call, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, like the new school. <laughs> and then uh, the people that are out today, like, you know, Beyonce. And uh, tell me how different it was to work with the old school 
compared to the new school? Well, um, well there's, um, you know, pros and cons to both, you know, but, um, you know, for the purposes of staying positive, keeping the positivity flowing, I'll talk about the positive. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there's, um, he has a such lot. a sense of humor, too, though. <laughs> Oh yeah, yes, yeah. It it's real good. It's, the timing is superb. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know the the old school um, artists really have that seasoning because they they've come up a lot of them through a very hard way and they've um, you know cut their teeth by you know trial and error. So they have a lot of experience that they can share and you know in in guiding being a light to your path that you know the road you're trying to get down, that they've already been down several times, you know. So I really got a lot of valuable experience um, and lessons, you know, from, from them, just sometimes on and off the stage, you know, just listening to their stories or their advice on, you know, how to handle the money or, or how to, you know, be professional. What does that really mean? You know, it's like if, if lobby call is at 6 a.m., if you come down at 6.03, if you don't see that tour bus or you're standing there by yourself, guess what? They left you, and they don't care. <laughs> but, you know, if you don't make it to that next city on time, on your own, if you don't get there, oh, you're fired. It's just that simple, you know? Yeah. Now, the new school artists, I mean, I love their vitality because they may not necessarily be dialed in as far as some of the other tradition or, or just as far as some of the um, – you know, fundamentals, but they just have that vibe and that spirit and that vitality that they're pulling on, at, which is really on the pulse of a lot of the, the modern-day listeners. You know, the audience now is like, we, we want to feel good. We want to have something that we can move to, whether it's jazz or R&B or pop. It doesn't really matter because it all comes from the same place of, you know, where you know, all art is really about um, transmitting high drama to the recipient, whether that's painting or music or acting. It's all about high drama, you know. That's why all the love songs really kind of hit us like they do because, you know, everybody's had a good experience in life. Everybody's had a bad experience in life, you know. And so the younger people, they kind of have, the newer artists have that pulse on the new spin of the same type of matter, you know, whereas the old school comes from a more traditional, you know, it's kind of like, you know, hanging out with your great aunt and then going to hang out with your cousin. Same family, but just a different right. family, you know. Good analogy. And, and um, now I would imagine that working with, somebody you actually attended a class with or, you know, that you uh, you were pretty on a friendly term with was a lot different than working with somebody that, you know, was brand new in, into your life. Did you feel a little apprehensive in, you know, trying to work with them or, you know, were they bossing you around, in other words? Oh, yeah, they did. Well, the majority of them do, the good ones and the not-so-good ones. They all, you know, because... You know, the music industry kind of breeds this insecurity in the in the artists because they're, they're always looking for the next hottest thing. And so once someone reaches a certain pinnacle of success, 
the pressure is immediately on them to do it again and to keep kind of one eye cocked behind them looking for that next person coming up trying to knock them off their, their perch and take their Especially spot. On the street. Oh, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, if you walk down the alley at 2.30 a.m., that's on you, you know. So, so, I mean, you can do it, but I wouldn't recommend it. Probably not. I was told that when I used to walk around at night in New York, a lot of people thought I was completely insane, so. Well, the music industry is like that, you know. So you have yeah, a lot of these veterans, you know, who, you know, they they look great in their own mind at age 22, and now they might be age 52, they still look great, but in their own mind, they don't look like the 22. It's like, well, okay, well, what 22-year-old does look like a 52-year-old and vice versa? You know, that's not even the perspective. It should really be about how you, <laughs> you know. So um, a lot of that gets, gets breeded, and so you find a lot of insecurity. As a result of that, they tend to take that out on their their unit, directly and indirectly, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, because a lot of them don't even realize that that's what's really happening. And so the job of the, the good sideman is to push through that anyway and still be professional, you know, just duck and dodge the bullet as long as you can and do your job that you're being paid to do. And so I feel like now as a front man myself, you know, I will never treat my band like that because I know how it feels, you know. Um, right. So I'm secure enough in myself. If I, you know, wasn't doing music, like I said, you know, in an interview the other day, I'd, I'd probably be running my mouth somewhere, you know, on a lecture, <laughs> cooking somebody's, you know. Come out. That's you why, because ha- it has to come out if you try to stuff it back, and it won't, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just divert right, the conversation. <laughs> Well, you know, Earl, even even if that were what you were doing, Earl, it's not like you're just spitting out a bunch of nonsense. You're actually sharing helpful information. So even if that were your chosen uh, path to run your mouth, (laughs) you're running some positive information amongst the masses of people. So, you know, some people are just talking about, you know, dumb things like, oh, the weather's really great today. And, you know, like we see weather people everywhere. But if you were out there doing something, you know, I could see you as an educator as well because you you have such a great demeanor about yourself that it seems like you could teach anybody anything, you know, and um, and they would actually pay attention to you. <laughs> oh, wow, thank you. I appreciate that. I yeah, it would have, be very easily digestible because of the way of your your method of delivery. Oh wow! Well, thank you very much. Um, I've done the lecture circuit um, as well, just a little bit. I'd I'd love to do more, <laughs> but um, you know, I've, I've taught um, at Emerson College. Um, I did a series there um, on film music and the psychological impact on the listener. Um, then I also developed a couple curriculums for different um, entities like the International House of Blues Foundation. Um, and then I have my own lecture series that I've um, been, um, you know, soliciting at different colleges and universities and high schools around the country to come in and actually speak just to give another spin so that people who claim they want to get into the music business really know what it is that they're actually pursuing. And then if you want to do it, great. You know, I mean, because it, it's I wouldn't choose any other profession in the world, you know. I mean, I love what I do. Um, and to be able to get paid for it is just a bonus, you know. Um, 
But at the same time, it is called the music business, not music friends, not music fun. It's music business. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You have to keep it focused. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't stay focused, you'll get out there thinking they really, really love you. You know, like they say, Mm -hmm. you love me, you really love me. Because as soon as somebody else comes along, it's like, who was that guy again? Mm-hmm. I mean, but look girl has the kind of music that stands the test of time. There's, there's no doubt about that. And right. spiritually, where his music takes you is it, it takes you someplace. That's oh, the music you. that stands the test of time, generation to generation. That was the popcorn. You know, in, you pop it in the microwave for like five minutes, and it does things that are like pyramids. <laughs> and we're still talking about them, and we're still wondering, how is that possible? And when music comes out that defines those kind of moments, I think it's outstanding because it's, it's such mm-hmm. a blessing from, from God because music spiritually and what it does to us internally and to the very gets to the heart, it's amazing. And when people can deliver it to the point where it goes straight to the heart and captivates the heart, please, it's not going nowhere. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, mean, I really see, you know, the, the gift that I've been blessed with is to do music and create as just that, a gift, you know, it's a blessing. And really when I sit down to play or to create something, I'm trying to just channel that spiritual expression, you know, and, and flip my my emotional self inside out and bare my soul for people to see. And I'm really trying to create something that, number one, I can be proud of, number two, something that I like. And exactly. so if I like it, you know, that that's all I'm, I'm, I'm really – setting out as far as a goal, you know, um, and it just, it makes me feel really good and blessed and honored that, that other people, you know, can like something that I like too, that I just happen to have created, you know? Yeah, well, we're, well, we're very much blessed by I have to agree. Oh, yeah. I'm going to try one more time to put on the song. I tell you, all that feels just put possibilities on. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> she likes that one. <laughs> You think so? <laughs> <laughs> That's where I put my money. I'm not a betting man, but, you know, let's go on the table. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> now, you had a song out called uh, 412. What was that about? How, where, did, where did that come from, 412? Wow. Well, interestingly enough, that is the address of the home where I grew up in York, Pennsylvania. Oh. And there are so many um, parallels within that song that that mirror my childhood and upbringing. Um, My older brother um, played the trumpet, you know, and so that's why you have the trumpet motif coming in there every now and then as almost like the overtone. Um, My younger brother um, had aspirations to play saxophone, and so that's why you have the dance back and forth with, the piano and the saxophone in that song. Um, and just uh, when I think of that song and how I, I, the inspiration that came out of it, I wanted something funky because, you know, I'm one of those those rare oddities in modern times that had a great childhood. I didn't have to deal with any, like, gang things or contention thing like that, you know. Uh, my parents are still together, you know, 40, ooh, 44 years now. You know, so it's just, you know, 
that's what I thought of when I was creating that song, just something that was an adequate, um, accurate representation of, you know, growing up in, you know, um, South Central Pennsylvania, you know. Right, because uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania, too, and I didn't have, you know, the same thing going on in my life either, you know, those types of negative uh, experiences. And do you think that, you know, some of the, the artists of today are the way they are and maybe cannot really handle their success because of their past experiences? I think so, but more importantly, because I think you can – you can rise above every, you know, great things even come out of the ashes, you know what I mean? But at the same token, I think that a lot of artists, the mistake they make is that they believe that uh, in order to be a great artist, you have to, quote, unquote, suffer for your art or you have to come out of some sort of adversity or you, you can't be, you know, you can't talk about anything positive because then you're perceived as being soft, you know, all these different things. So then they try and, and either tailor make or gravitate towards something negative in order to make themselves a better artist. And I think that's just a, a, a very dismal mistake. Yeah, I would agree with that, you know, because yeah. I, I see a lot of things. more. They become more famous for going backwards into that negative atmosphere. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of people who are hard and tough and and – there's no punk, et cetera, et cetera, and they're six feet deep, you know, um, and because they're trying to prove something to themselves or trying to have this other, you know, thing. And, and it's all smoke and mirrors anyway, you know. Um, right. It's just an image. So, yeah. Because and, and, at the end of the day, the hardest, you know, person you know, they still love their mama. Let something happen to your mom. He's telling the truth. (laughs) You know he's telling the truth. That's right. my mom. I'll be the first one. I say you'll see the teardrop and a little snot bubble form or something, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. I'm going to make this attempt to play 412 and see if it hopefully didn't. You know, because sometimes your music is so good that it won't play. <laughs> oh, wow. So let's see what happens this time. Okay. I guess not. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> well, it's so that good is- that it won't even play on the radio. <laughs> that just means they have to go but, buy it, that's all. <laughs> right, well... You know, I'm well, they're, put, on, they're you know, on our site. The, 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 I believe you have a, a player on. Bingo has one on our show page, oh, and then great. we have them blasted out around meme pages and other pages that we have. So yeah, it's all over the it's place. Fully, so. we got it all over. The place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have the rest of your links and everything um, put up as well. Did you have any particular website you got up now that's advertising or promoting anything you want us to shout out for you? Uh, well, um, I guess the, the main one I've been pushing is uh, the cdbaby.com, www.cdbaby.com slash Earl R. Johnson, Jr. And that's, you can get the um, hard copy of the CD or MP3s if you want. Um, I'm also up on iTunes and Amazon and all the, basically all the digital sites as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, 
uh, my main goal now, um, in addition to those um, outlets to get the CD, is I'm trying to take my band around the country and play live to all the different festivals and, you know, clubs and, you know, I'll play bar mitzvahs, I'll play weddings, funerals, divorces, you know. Your music you might let them get back together in the case of a divorce case, but Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can always uh give James Dennis a call, you know, and come over here to the Jet the Lat Meets Jazz um, series because it's going on for the next ten weeks, and oh, wow. you know um, I don't know what the arrangements would be between you musicians, but I'm sure he'd be happy to have someone else with some you know skills and uh, experience and background. So you know you can always uh, give him a call or contact him on his MySpace page. I can forward that to you a little later. Oh, um, great. I know he has a lot of people coming up, and then he has some type of uh, oldies thing for Mother's Day with the Tramps, and um, I'm not sure who else. It was another old-school band. It might have been somebody in Cameo. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, you can you can always do something like that. You know, if you, and that way I'd get to see you yeah, live. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... But now I I had a question in particular about one of the artists that you've worked with. Okay. And I've heard a lot of rumors. And, you know, sometimes it takes a person that was actually right there on the spot to, to, you know, defunct all those rumors. Now my girl, Tina Marie, I've been told Mm -hmm. is very difficult to work with because she's a hardworking woman and all. Um, And she's... you know, a very talented woman. So can you tell me how it was working with her? Did you have any any kind of experience that you would remember for the rest of your life? Or, you know, tell me about it. Well, um, I haven't toured with her, so I can't speak on how she is on the road. But um, there was, um, she's actually sat in on a couple different um, situations with other artists I've been playing with, like Gerald Albright and things. Um, and then um, there was one particular situation where we were actually going to play um, at a funeral, in, in, interestingly enough. And I guess the person was uh, relatively close to her, and so we were going to do um, Black Butterfly by uh, Denise Williams. And Ooh, I like um, that. Oh, yeah, it was a oh, story. Oh, I like that. Phenomenal. <laughs> And so, you know, I rehearsed with her, you know, went up to her, because she lives out here as well, so in L.A., the L.A. area. And so I went to her home, and, you know, we rehearsed and got everything prepared. And she was very nice and sweet and warm and just real. I guess the the public persona or when other, like, the fans are around or, you know, paparazzi or whatever, most of the artists go into another headspace. But I was fortunate enough to, to see her in the private moments, and she was just cool. So, I mean, I, she, I didn't see any of the, you know, the, the horns and the, you know, fork tongue and, and tail thing. I didn't see that, you know. Um, and then last minute, um, I guess the morning of, she was so overcome by the whole situation that she ended up canceling, which wasn't, you know, I was like, okay, this is not a good look. <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh, and, no. you know. 
And it's well, so she is very emotional. <laughs> yeah. And so that was that. And I said, wow. So, but, I mean, as, as a person and as an artist who worked with, she seemed, um, she knows what she wants, you know, and she is not shy about being vocal about it. But I actually like that, you know, because it takes the guesswork away. Right. You know? And um, if you have that sort of orientation anyway, where because um, especially as a sideman, it's, it's our job to be like a chameleon and to fit the situation. So I'm not going to try and make a situation fit me where I, I show up and just do what I do and, you know, they're going to love it because they're hiring me to be me. No, they're hiring me to, to fit the situation, you know, and to really be that solid oak stage under them so that they can dance and do whatever they need to do as the artist. And I understand that. And so if she's going to tell me, okay, I want it like this, do that, do this, don't do that, change this here, put that there, I'm like, hey, okay. And I give them that. And I guess that's how I've been able to have um, the type of career that I've had because I've always made that my first priority with any artist I'm working with or even with my situation. You know, um, I don't really, you know, uh, snap at my bands or, or tell them, do this, do that, do this, because I, I particularly love the, the, the free aspect of the creativity with my thing. But I do understand that, that all artists don't really come from that headspace. No, and it's okay. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, I don't care. If I had to work with Tina, I wouldn't care how she was acting, what she was doing. <laughs> so long as I get to sit in the corner somewhere and just listen and watch, because I think she's amazing. I, yeah. I went to a uh, concert Definitely. she did at the Robin Hoodell. Remember that place, Earl? I know it was up before you left. <laughs> I've heard of it. I've never been there, but I have heard of it. Yeah, it's in. It's like one of our outdoor um, uh, auditoriums where you can have really great shows. And Frankie Beverly goes there all the time. And Ooh, wow. um, I got to see her there. And it was what was funny to me was like she used other people's um, music and did you know some of their songs, but she kind of incorporated her own work in it. And uh, she did one song that was from Jay-Z's uh, I Just Want to Love You. She used a beat. Wow. And I love that song. That was the coolest thing to, to listen to her rap to that. Like she wow. made up a rap, like just a freestyle. So I didn't know that she was like a rapper rapper too. You know, like she had those kind of skills. Cause I mean, she, on Square Bit, she did a little bit of rap. But um, when she did that on that, I was just floored. Yeah. And then after the show was supposedly over, I'm halfway to the car because she went backstage. And I really hate when artists do this and they, they make us feel like the show's over. So, well, you know, we're trying to beat the crowd and get to your car. She came back out and started doing a couple more songs. And you should have saw me and my cousin trying to run back to where we were sitting at to finish the show out. <laughs> Yeah. Because it was, that's how great her show was. We we you know we we did a U turn. Wow. You know, and now Robin Hoodell's in Fairmont Park. That's way out in the woods. So yeah. <laughs> that's how great she was. Now, when you have your your shows and your performances, do you have a large fan base that you connect with at all? You know, like uh, that you communicate with either via the web or 
or um, mail, anything like that? How's it going for your fan base? Um, well, um, all of the above. You know, I try, I, I try and get off the um, uh, out as many different outlets as I can as far as getting the word out on online, uh, emails, you know, blog thing. I'm, um, I have a Facebook page, etc. Um, but I will say it could always be better. You know, there's no such thing as, as having too many fans, and I, I'd love to connect with anybody who wants to connect with me. So um, I try and, and just get out the word to as many different outlets as I can. And it's been good, you know. Um, as I actually um, can find some wood so I can knock on some wood, but I haven't found anybody um, really who's had any negative reaction to what we've been doing live or the CD. You know, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, even to the point where um, the nominations that I have coming up here at the South Bay Music Awards, um, that's going to be a really big one because um, I think my fan base will really grow, um, especially if I win. <laughs> you know, I'm nominated <laughs> in three categories. And so um, I think people will pay attention at that point um, if, you know, the industry is recognizing, you know, the artistry as well. I did um, have a quick question. This is, would be kind of a flip back to the show on Wednesday when we were talking about some of the behind-the-scenes jobs and positions that are available in the music scene for people that may have talents that fit those and the security that's involved to a little bit more security involved with being behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, like I mentioned on, on Wednesday, it's, um, there's a lot more job security in uh, the behind-the-scenes jobs, because you don't have that pressure to be the next hottest whatever. You know, most um, artists, myself included, have a uh, you know whole team behind them that makes them look good, makes them sound good, you know, um, make sure everything runs, like that, that machine is running efficiently. And so you have, you know, your, your management team, course, your business manager, your personal manager, and all that. But then you also have the this personal assistant, you know, you have the uh, makeup artist, you have um, the uh, engineers, you know, the recording engineers, the people who actually run the um, recording equipment in the studio, whether that's a, a big studio, and a lot of those are disappearing now because most people own their own. So they hire these engineers to come into their homes or into their private studios to do the same type of job. Um, you have drivers, you know, because sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's not that people are trying to be pretentious, but it's just a smart move to, to have someone around you um, who can assist you. And I think even, you know, just to visit real briefly, the whole thing with Rihanna and, and Chris, one of them. It don't have to be brief. that would have gone down. I was saying that same thing. Why are they on the streets alone? Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's like okay, I know they're they're still young, but I mean, somebody in in both of those camps should take partial responsibility for that because somebody, multiple people, in my opinion, dropped the ball on their situation, to have them out, you know, drunk or not, angry or not, jealous or not, you know, to have them by themselves or for a situation like that to escalate. You could have your people right. around them. I concur. That's right. 
So, um, you have assistants like that that, you know, could be around. You also have, um, you know, um, tour managers. You have the, uh, I already mentioned the drivers, caterers, you know, uh, wardrobe people, and their only job is to make sure everything is themed and pressed. And, you know, a lot of times they pick out the fashion choices. So they wear the double hat of a fashion consultant. Image consultant, which is, it could incorporate fashion, but it's also about, you know, like, you know, our, our girl Whitney. They had to teach her how to give an interview, how to, to speak, what things to say that would promote and, and foster her career, which things to leave alone, you know. Um, but there's a lot of different jobs like that, you know. Do you know or aware of where um, listeners can obtain additional information? Is it like well, a central website or something or through a um, music association or union? Well, not really. Uh, the union has more of the tangible jobs like, you know, music copyists um, mm-hmm. that you know, write the charts out, arrangers, orchestrators, uh, you know, things like that. Um, but as far as those other jobs, it's really um, kind of like word of mouth. There's no kind of thought, though. <laughs> yeah, no organization. Because, and I, cause I tell you, all those the different people I've worked with and played for and written for and stuff, mm-hmm. I've never auditioned for anything. It's all been through word of mouth and reputation, and they see with one job. And so, hey, uh, like, for example, I was playing with Jeffrey Osborne on tour, and we did a couple shows with Gladys Knight, and her musical director took a liking to me and then offered me a run with Gladys. And so that's how I got hired with Gladys. You know, wow. So, yeah, um, that's, that's always a powerful tool. It really is. <laughs> Whether that's the music of corporate America, it's always been a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always, well, you can see the business part of it, too. You know. Yes, definitely. Um, and that's I why mean, I'm really glad he, he brought emphasis to that this evening again for people to understand the business component, not the art, the business component of it. Right, because it's not a fantasy by no means. And a lot of people go into it, oh, I'm going to be a big star and I'm going to make lots of money and have lots of fans. And, you know, they're sometimes in a terrible need of a reality check. And Mm -hmm. I hate when they they get it in the worst way, you know, and then they just up and disappear. Like one group that I, I, I loved, absolutely loved, was Drew Hill. And I'm like, where are they? Where the heck? What the heck happened to Cisco? You know? Yeah. I mean, he came back for a minute. They came back for a minute, and they left again. I'm. A, I wasn't sure it was because of a relationship issues. You know, not getting along, or somebody's ego was a little too far fetched. You know, money yeah. issues. It could, you know, I know that a lot of those things take a, a big, you know, uh, factor in in how, how when when and how a group stays together. Do you agree with that? Oh, most definitely. And a lot of times it's a combination of all of the things you just mentioned, you know, not getting along, the egos, the money issues, the, you know, that insecurity thing. It, it really it brings out the best and the worst in people uh, and people who've grown up. Because you know, I know Drew Hill is, is from Baltimore, um, and, you know, they, they grew up together. They knew each other. So um, for things to go where they kind of went with that group ultimately – it's just a shame to see that, you know, the industry can can alter somebody's view of one of their friends. I mean, if you're my boy or my girl, hey, 
you know, we ride or die, you know, to the end. And it's nothing to change that. But, right. you know, what anybody says, I'd be like, no, that's, you know, that's not the revenge that I know. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> uh, you got to twist it. All right. I never do you wrong. <laughs> I'm a ride or die. There you go. <laughs> yeah, other people, you know, if they're not that strong-minded, you're like, man, you know, the other day, man, I saw revenge. She was so, so You know, they went, what? Oh, man, I, I can't deal with her no more. You know, nah, nah. He did that to him. I don't know what she – see, and, you know, and that's how stuff gets started. And well, it's true. And I'd like mm-hmm. it to experience, like, when, you you know, the new school season would start, and so you'd have a flood of children, kids, your friends or whomever telling you that, oh, gosh, that's the worst teacher in the world. How is that that teacher was always the best teacher I ever had? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> me. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It's just, and then you have those managers and publicists that kind of put their two cents in there. And when they see, you know, I, I've seen it happen myself. When there's one person out of the group that's thinking, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't do this and maybe we shouldn't do that or whatever. Let's think about this a little more. The one with the reasonable thoughts. Everybody else, oh, well, it's going to be great. And, you know, and then, then the person who's going to make a lot of commission off of this is like, oh, okay, it's going to make them change their mind. So that guy steps in and starts putting little things in the other guy's heads, you know, about this one that's, that's trying to be reasonable. And next thing you know, they're like, you're trying to hold us back and, you know, you, you're, you're not thinking the same way we are. We're trying to go somewhere. You're not trying to go anywhere. Do you ever see that type of thing happen in your experience? Definitely. happens all the time. You know, I call them the gatekeepers. You know, the gatekeepers are usually get in the way of, you know, things or, or alter, you know, what otherwise would happen. I mean, I know, you know one one manager comes to mind, and, you know, I won't say the name, but one comes to mind where, you know, if you looked at the, the writer of um, the artist request, the stuff that would be in the green room, for example, uh, mm-hmm. The manager had more things on the list than the actual artist did, mm. and then uh, wouldn't allow any of the band members because the band sometimes gives the opportunity to to get some things like that as well. I mean, it's called you know the, the perks of being on the road, and he would actually block the band from doing from having any um, extra accolades or extra libations or whatever they wanted backstage so that he could have more stuff for himself, mm. you know. And then there's one situation we were supposed to play in at a resort in Jamaica with this one particular artist, and they ended up flying the band. The show was on a Saturday. They flew the band in on a red-eye Friday night, so we arrived in Jamaica on Saturday around noonish or so. Had just enough time to go from the hotel, from the airport to the hotel and drop our bags go straight to the venue because we had sound checks. That went long because we had some other issues going on. After the sound check, we had just enough time to go eat, grab something really quick, change clothes and get ready for the show, and then get back and perform. After you get off of a, a, a flight that's, you know, anywhere from five to eight hours, you want to, like, at least rest up or, you know. But we didn't have the luxury. Come to find out after the fact, we could have flown in three days prior to the performance, but the manager had his family members come in, and they took up those rooms. 
Mm. And I said, wow, mm. how did that go? You know, what mm. instrument are they playing? You know? Mm. And, 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 wow. and it's enough. It's not always the managers or the other people. Sometimes it's the artists themselves. You know, I actually had one situation where I, I was um, hired to go to South Africa. I've been there a couple times, actually. Absolutely gorgeous country. I can't wait to go back. I strongly recommend that both of you all make that trip at some point. You know, work and I, private. I, I thought about it, but I had, you know, so many people telling me some things that, were, you know, were not pleasant. Um, not really? that it would affect the entire country, but um, a friend of mine, her, uh, well, it could have been the girl's fault, too. But <laughs> it'll be a funny story. <laughs> My girlfriend's cousin married a Nigerian. Okay. okay. She married this Nigerian, and she lived with him here in the United States for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So I guess she was a very forward and you know, you know, aggressive type person or whatever. So he uh-huh. took her and her two young sons that she didn't have with him, but she took he took her to Africa to meet the family. Mm-hmm. So when she got to the she got there to meet the family, I don't think she realized that. You know, there were like two other wives. Oh yeah, and so she kind of got upset. (laughs) She kind of got upset, and then next thing you know, they beat her up and they tied her to a tree outside the house or whatever, like a dog, and fed her like you know pans of food and water and stuff like that, and just continued to come out and beat her up. I know that's not happening everywhere, but, <laughs> but that was all you needed to hear. <laughs> right. You know, if you just tell me one bad thing and that's it for me, you know. Um, yeah. Not that I'm going to believe everything somebody says, but I, I know my friend's not telling another story, you know, but it was just amazing that that happened, you know. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, hopefully, right, hopefully that's not a norm. <laughs> you know, in Nigeria, there there are. I gotta put this uh, a little bit correct. They're, they're a little different. <laughs> oh my in in South Africa, it's actually extremely cool. I mean, when we yeah, were up, we were getting hugged and kissed. Welcome home, our long lost cousins from America. You know, I mean, it was like that. You know, and um, the 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 countryside is absolutely gorgeous. The people just gorgeous. You know, I mean, it's it's really like a a, a paradise. You know, a lot of people talk like that about about Brazil. You know, being so, such a gorgeous country with the greenery and all of that. But you know, South Africa is like whoa. I mean, just phenomenal. Yeah, I'll take I've it heard out. the pros and cons, and you're describing the other side that I've heard. And I, I've mm. actually, when I've spoken to people that have been here. Just in them doing the description, I can feel it and see it in their eyes, everything, every word, because the intensity of the beauty comes through them like that. So yeah. I've heard the really, really beautiful sides. Even when you're talking now, I can go, like, literally straight there. Um, but then I've heard, you know, I've heard a couple of stories like what Ravinda's talking about as well, you know, oh, yeah. in America getting married and didn't know that, okay, there's another part of the deal. Um, I might have about 20 seconds at home. I won't tell you till you get off the plane. Kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you can't just come out like you do in America and say, 
Oh no, you. This is not. This is my husband. This, you can't go there because then that's disrespecting him in front of the family, and then of course they have a right to beat you down. So. Oh, yeah. When you once you travel outside of the United States extensively, you really get a whole other appreciation for what we have here. You know. Yeah. Right. There was this artist who I was traveling over there, you know, as a musical director to train, you know, the band because we use all South African musicians. Um, and so we had set it up with this festival that, you know, we would both fly over first class, you know, um, a couple of days ahead, you know, we could rest up, and then I would run the rehearsals and the show. Well, this so happened that he, at the last minute, the 11th hour, he decided that he wanted to take his wife along, but the promoter wouldn't pay for a third first-class ticket. So guess who got bumped back to coach class? Mm. Hey. And I'm like, well, okay, first of all, I'm 6'5", okay. <laughs> Fly 21 hours in the air in a coach seat. I don't think so. I, I really uh, don't think so. <laughs> you know, some of those folks couldn't even spell the word deodorant, let alone use it. <laughs> you know, so, and then I had to be dressed up to, to still work when I got there. I said, "Come on, man!" <laughs> so it's not always the managers who, who flip that script on you. You know, sometimes it's the artists themselves. You know, but you know so. how I deal with that though. My price tag goes up a little bit higher. <laughs> right. That's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Especially last minute, it should be an insurance policy now. <laughs> so many experiences, you're going to have a certain policy intact, you know. Well, I can understand why a lot of artists will put the money into having their own jets and stuff, too. Oh, yeah. That yeah. I can totally understand. Mm-hmm. Because well, that'd be a big Why were you going through that particular scenario that you just described? That's crazy. Yeah. And there's a quantum leap difference between coach and first class. Oh, yes, it is. It's a different world. <laughs> Even for a short person like me. Even because you're tall, but I'm short. I'm like a whole foot shorter than you. and You know? Okay. <laughs> and I don't care how many hot towels you bring or orange juice or, you know, three cocktails. <laughs> Like keep keep your warm nuts. I want some leg room. <laughs> I know. Thank you. <laughs> so have you been traveling? I'm sorry. Oh, have you been traveling a lot lately? You know, like uh, just across the country. You know, for different projects. Actually, um, I've done uh, some things in Atlanta, going back and forth. And I used to travel to New York a lot, but then um, the um, producer that I've been working with there, just co-producing things, um, we do a lot of our recording now via the Internet. So he'll email stuff to me here. I do what I do on it and then send it back to him, you know, like that. So I don't really have to jump on a plane as much. Um, That's the way to Yeah. And with promoting the CD, um, I haven't um, been traveling extensively yet, but I plan to this summer um, through the end of the year, actually. You know, like I said, as, as much as I can do it, I will do it. You know, I have a very high 
um, tolerant. I love meeting people. I have great stamina, you know. So I'm, I'm just ready to, to hit the ground running as far as doing all of that, you know. <laughs> now, speaking of, you know, like promotions and things like that, um, my my company, Mingle Zone Network, has embarked on a project to do some promotions for uh, unsigned artists, artists who have very little experience in promotions or very small budgets for promotions. And um, we've decided to take over, you know, the whole opportunity of the Internet to do the promotions and using the, you know, web optimization and social networking to help build fan bases for uh, these artists. Um, because generally nobody really knows who they are except their hometown mm-hmm. until they get on something like MySpace or Reverb or something like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are so many ways to bring more traffic to them um, by the use of the, the different tools that we have available. So when thinking about the future, do you see the Internet as being a really big uh, factor in whether you know, an artist makes it or not as far as, like, uh, getting fans and promotions and things like that? Most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, I think um, now with just the new way of doing things, um, because we're really part of, as we see with this, you know, current economy um, in the country, the whole situation that's going on now, it's really brought a, a spotlight on the fact that we're a global economy now. We're no longer confined by, um, you know, borders through country or, or whatever. So, um, and music has always been at the forefront of cross um, um, cross collateral boundaries, you know, in going into places where, you know, people will, with the, uh, I can put it this way, I will probably never be in, in uh, Indonesia, for example, and yet someone who's sitting in their living room in Jakarta can pull up and listen to Possibilities or Tasha's Way or 412, you know, and know all about me because of the Internet. You know, and that's a very powerful tool that I think a lot of artists are starting to pay attention to now um, and and market themselves accordingly, you know, on there. So um, I, I agree with you, and I, I really want to take my hat off and applaud you for that and would love to, to participate in that with you, you know, with your company and all that, that you guys are doing as well. You know, I think you're you're right on the money as far as um, that being the new way, you know, try and um, really reach more of a um, a global audience. Absolutely. Because exactly. uh, I've spoken to a lot of artists that were considering international, um, <clears throat> you know, international exposure because they – you know, they really want to reach that worldwide level, but their budgets don't allow them to do that. And then, you know, they don't know what the audience is like that over there. So, you know, our goal was to try to get them um, heard and promoted overseas as well so that, you know, just like Michael Jackson can go anywhere outside of the United States and be like a king, mm-hmm. treated like a king, because he's, he's loved by international fans so yeah. much more than domestic fans. And a lot of artists want that type of reaction when, when they go over there. So 
you know, in order to do that, they have to know who you are. And if you're not going over there, how are they going to know? So, exactly. you know, we want to we want to work with you know other artists that are more experienced, veteran artists that have connections with, you know, like the management in other countries like Japan and uh, the UK, the Netherlands, places like that because they've been there already. You know, to help us get that type of thing available to the other artists as well, instead of waiting for them to become famous, which we don't know when that's going to happen. You know, yeah, really. but it's, yeah. if they could become famous without even someone even seeing their face personally, you know, mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. of the internet. Exactly, that's true. and I, uh, what I'd like to piggyback on is I think the venue of Block Talk Radio, because the whole game in the music industry with getting a new artist into a radio station, we're not going to go there. In this venue, that's a non-issue for them. Mm-hmm. And you know what yeah. I'm talking about. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so they have a venue where they can come on our shows at any time they want. Whatever music you have, we're going to blast it. Mm-hmm. You can't right. go to any radio station and get that. They, they, oh, I don't want to go there. <laughs> you can't switch your time. And once it's over, it's over. It's not like you can hear it again because they don't do replays. You know, Blog Talk Radio to me is fantastic because it allows uh, listeners to download that interview to listen to later. It will also allow the artists to download it so they can critique their interview skills and, Mm -hmm. you know, see how they do well with questions and things like that. And and it also allows you to to be portable with it by, you know, transferring that information to your iPod. Everybody, every other person in the world has an iPod. So, you know... This is music that you can carry with you and just in the format of uh, an, a nice conversation because you're relaxed. You know, we're not pressuring you. We're not, you know, asking you to divulge personal information. You know, you can if you want to. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, any gossip you want to pass on, you know, feel free. But <laughs> I'm not going to come right out and ask you for it. <laughs> you know, you know something that I don't know, you know. <laughs> Let's get the facts, you know, because I can't get TMZ on here. So <laughs> they have their own show. <laughs> right. But I think it's a, a fantastic media um, tool to use, you know, and uh, we hope to get a lot more people, and we're trying to pass the word on to our veteran artists because they kind of dropped behind the scenes to, to let yeah. the young folks come up front and do their thing, but they're still performing, you know, and maybe smaller venues but they still have a classic following. And we want to reach out to them as well because we miss them, you know. We we can appreciate having good music when we know what we have now, what we had then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they need so to anybody that. that you want to forward to us, you know. Okay. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then the other thing, the other beauty of it is not only just having the music blasted and on players and things like that, but to incorporate it into the shows. So if we have segments mm-hmm. and things like that, it will be incorporated into the show. Yeah, that right. sounds good. And another we good... We uh, at a regular radio station. We all know that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. You hear the same 10 artists every day. <laughs> it's crazy. Don't so. get me started. <laughs> so I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> so any comments you want to, you know, share... And uh, pass your great experience. And don't tell them about the issue with the music. <laughs> That's not a regular. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, I had a show the other day. It went fine. It's only when they're upgrading. So now we're going to talk to Block Talk ourselves about giving us a heads up on when they're upgrading so that we know, you know, what we can and cannot do beforehand because, right, you know. Right, should go out with something like that. Right. So even though just like with any any radio station, TV station, they have their little wrinkles from the, from time to time, you know, but we still want to keep our conversation going and you know we we have enough material enough you know things to ask you to keep the conversation going where we still learn a lot from you and that's what we like to be able to have you in that position where you feel comfortable with us and you can share your personal experiences we actually are interested in hearing what you have to say i've noticed a lot of radio stations they just want to know about the album you know any gossip they heard and they don't mm-hmm. really spend a lot of time with the artists. And, you know, I don't get to know them as a person until I see them on Jay Leno or something like that. And then his questions are prearranged, too. So, you know, I like this comfortable atmosphere, you know. Like, I feel like we're old friends. Exactly. Yeah, I do, too. I mean, I really like this, this format. And, um, you know, I'm I'm really unfazed by, you know, the little glitches because, you know, that's life, you know. It happens. Exactly. Sometimes you got to just roll with it, you know. Um, and I just see it as an opportunity. It's like, okay, well... You know, I just have to come back another time, and it'll work the next time, you know. I mean, oh, it's all, absolutely. Because I think if, if we have more of a, um, you know, nurturing attitude towards each other, we can help each other grow in that way and, and focus on our strengths and kind of dismiss, you know, some of the, the things that don't go quite as planned. It's like, eh, whatever. You know, that's part of the whole creativity anyway. I mean, you if things are so controlled and so so absolutely perfect, well, another word for that is sterile, you know? Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to, you know, drink Kool-Aid with no sugar in it. Sometimes you got to have, you know, <laughs> some, well, we some sweet low. You got to put some sweet low in there. <laughs> we live in a world you of need the a it's not black and white. Right. Exactly. You know, I, I live in you a have gray to be flexible. Area. That's what it is. Correct. Yeah. Adaptable. Yeah. And I never take myself too seriously either. That's the other part that a lot of artists, they take themselves way too seriously. You know, oh, oh, it didn't go perfect. Oh, I'm ruined. (laughs) It's like, whatever. (laughs) Right. One uh, artist I have in mind that rolls with the punches and keeps the show going, and a lot of people hate on her, but a lot of people still love her, is my, my girl Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Um, that concert, she's had a lot of concert issues, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There was a time when she fell down the steps, oh, I mean, yeah. face first into the floor. And the, I just had so much respect for her at that time because she just got up and just got right back into the rhythm. And, and I wouldn't have been able to swing my head around if I just finished slamming it into the floor. But mm-hmm. that's what she did, and she kept the show going, you know. There's been incidences where, like, the equipment or the lighting or something sparked at the uh, audience in the front row. And, you know, I know she was concerned and everything like that, but the show still has to go on. And I can respect her a lot for that. And it looks like, you know, she's had a lot of great people teaching her how to be a good performer. Whether you like her music or not, she is still a very excellent performer. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Okay, I, I have a false story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're hurting me right now. Bringing up bad memories. Tell us more. <laughs> I was in Chicago. 
and I was performing with Kenny Lattimore, and we were at this you know, venue, nice theater, it's jam-packed, sold-out house, right? And I happened to have a couple solos, you know, in the in the performance. And um, once you you actually see me perform, then this this story will make so much more sense to you because I have a, a really fiery performance style. I mean, I totally give my all to the performances, especially if I'm soloing. And so there's this one particular, you know, passage in my solo where I just wanted to go from the top of the keyboard, the high end, all the high notes, the whole way down to the bottom, you know, and that was like the climax of my solo. So I'm doing it at, you know, 247 miles per hour. How the stage was set up for Kenny, both the keyboard players, because he had two, were on opposite sides of the stage, and we were on risers. And so they had us up on these risers about maybe, you know, three feet high off the stage. And then um, I had my rig set up pretty high. So I was on a stool, like a bar stool type of thing. And I had my rig, you know, keyboard set up really high like that. Well, the um, the riser was a little rickety, and the stool was a little rickety. You know, it was one of those, you know, We Three Brothers productions, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> they didn't really have it, like, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we were taking work. We were working it out. So the whole show was fine until I got to this point in my solo, and I was so into what I was doing, I didn't realize that the leg on the um, on the stool was getting weaker and weaker. I didn't realize it. So I'm going, so by the time I get down to the bottom of the keyboard, at the very moment, which happened to be the end of the solo, the leg broke. So oh I get to the bottom, and all of a sudden, I just fall backwards off the riser, flat on my back. The audience... Now, now here's, you can't even write this kind of comedy. The audience went berserk. They thought I did it on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So all I can do is jump off and put my hands up, Rocky style, like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that hurt. (laughs) (laughs) They could barely play. You know, and I was actually hurt, but, you know, I wasn't going to show it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my fault story. I I couldn't really recover as well as Beyonce did, but, (laughs) 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 you know, the audience didn't know, so I guess it was okay. (laughs) Oh, my God. That was just that's funny, but it's not funny. Exactly. I mean, yeah, like you know, they probably had to take out insurance on you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But for, for a brief moment when I was laying there, I was thinking to myself, I'm rich. I own a theater now. <laughs> yeah, you could have done that. That would have worked. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, do you have any any experiences that were kind of on a negative side with any of the artists that you work with, other than, you know, falling and stuff like that, but... You know, like this the the whole outcome of their the whole impression they made on you, especially earlier in your career. Oh yeah, I, I had um one just one particular artist who, you know, falls in that category of you know taking themselves way too seriously and they wanted to micromanage every single thing. I mean, to okay, don't don't play 
this, play it like, like I did, like this, like that. And I was like, okay, that's cool. So you try and, you know, emulate, you know, what their wishes as best you can. Um, but there's always some variety in what you do because that's the human element and stuff, you know. Um, this guy, I mean, he would he would want the, the drums, for example, to play exactly like um, the recording. I mean, every little beat, every hi-hat thing, every, you know, and it's like, well, man, if you want things that specific, perhaps you should just play the track, and that way you can get exactly what you want, you know. But you have live souls up here. I mean, I don't care... If I play the same song four times, it's going to be slightly different each time, you know. I mean, that's just human nature, you know. Um, but that was never good enough for him. But he would never really focus on his mistakes. His mistakes were always somebody else's fault. Well, I would have been able to do it if you didn't blah, 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 you know, one of those kind of mm-hmm. people. And so we did that's this. That's a responsibility. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You got it. Um. And so we, we did this one particular show, I remember. Um, it was actually my last show that I did with him because he fired me after that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were up here doing the show and, you know, halfway through, because it was like a double set thing. So we did our first set, and he decided that, you know, between sets he was going to give us his pep talk. And so, and, and the thing with him, he had all these philosophies you know, these, these isms, almost almost said his first name, but he had these, his, like, my name is Earl, these Earl-isms that, that he would have <laughs> and he would just expound on them at any, you know, well, you know, they say blah, 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 all these things, you know. So he decided he's going to give us a pep talk between the set, and he just ripped into me. And I'm like, okay, so you mean to tell me that, People are going to get up and ask for their money back, you know, at the box office because of something I played on the stage in the first set. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Well, see, <laughs> you know, that's not the point. The point is that you're up there being very sloppy, and I don't even know why you call yourself a professional if you can't even play basic stuff. And I mean, he just ripped into me like that. I'm thinking, okay, dude, first of all, you're not my first gig. And I don't think I would have been able to play with all these other people if I was sloppy and unprofessional and didn't know what I was doing and ill-prepared and, you know, all this stuff that he was saying. So he's going to tell me that this most likely will be my last performance with him. I said, oh, so now you expect me to go out and do a good job for you? And, and I know, I said, come on, man, what are you doing? I said, you know, you need to take a course in, you know, how to how to really boost the morale of your your people behind you, you know. How are you going to cut us down and expect us to do a good job for you? Mm-hmm. So that was the wrong thing to say, obviously, because <laughs> he just went berserk. <laughs> what needed to be uh, said. Yeah, because, hey, I'm not that person. Like I said, I'm, I'm East Coast through and through. Hey, you know, I don't have I don't bite my tongue. <laughs> so, I'm not holding it down in the, in the West. <laughs> You know, no, no. Out there, out here, oh, they'll smooth you. Yeah, man, oh, cool, yeah, yeah. You walk away, don't ever hire him again. You know, <laughs> I, I'll tell you. You know, so after he ripped into, you know, me, and then, you know, it wasn't just me, but, you know, ripped into basically everybody in the band, but he was extra hard on me. We go out there, we play the second set. That's because she was Halfway through the second set, he leaves the stage, 
And we're still, he's like mid-song. So we're now just vamping, waiting on him to come back. He's on the side of the stage crying. E-R-Y-I-N-G. I said. <laughs> and I said. <laughs> Obviously, that has nothing to do with us. He's dealing with some issues. I mean, there's something else going on with him in his life that, you know. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I love music, you know. And, you know, I wouldn't choose any other profession in the world, but it's just music. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not, you know, come on now. We can't take it that seriously, you know. I mean, to the point where he told the drummer at one point, uh, I'm digressing, another time he got all over the drummer because he saw fingerprints on the drummer's cymbal. Oh, no. And he, mm-hmm. he had it. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> so, you know, that guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> that but yeah. I can't even take it personal because I've heard similar stories from a lot of folks because he goes through a lot of band members. And so I've heard a similar type of thing, you know. And it, it, I should have known. It's actually my fault because when I first got the gig, I showed up in rehearsal. You know, they, they gave me the, the stuff ahead of time, you know, a CD and some charts. I learned everything, you know, because I'm the same guy. I'm very consistent. I show up prepared with everything that they gave me. As it turns out, they only gave me half of the set. So there were another, like, eight or nine songs that they never gave me, but they expected me to know. I said, okay, so how was I supposed to know that you didn't give me everything? And that's my fault? Well, whenever you get hired, it's your ultimate responsibility to know what you're supposed to have. I said, come on, man, how am I supposed to know what I don't have? I said, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. You gave me something. You hired me. You gave me the material. I learned what you gave me. So because you forgot to give me something or you got your wires crossed with somebody else, that's my fault? Well, whatever you say, uh, ultimately you're the person here right now who's still prepared. So what does that really mean? What are you, what's, your real, what's your real argument, Earl? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess when you put it that way, but, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow, so that's very. Says like, is something else. I mean, you probably had a whole a whole lot of uh, things happen to you. And well, since we do have about two minutes left in the show, unfortunately, we can't add on another half an hour because I would do so just for you. Because oh, wow. I'm in loving my conversation, and I'm sure that we can always chat on the phone or by email. <clears throat> you know, I know it's just a three-hour difference, but um, you know. That's fine with me. Call me 3 o'clock in the morning. That's fine. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. (laughs) Nashiba knows I'm up, but I never go to sleep. I'm a vampire. So. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. (laughs) But it's been a pleasure having you on the show and this, you know, giving us all this information. And, you know, I I wish we could have put put the music on, but I did have your your Amazon. Link available on the on the page, so anyone can go and pick up the downloads on there, and um, and we'll post the the other links to your other websites as well, and continue to promote you, and then we can have you on another show as well, because when we start working on this uh, promotional 
um, program. We're going to do a special show on that. And I'd love to have you involved so you can tell these young artists about some more things they should know before they sign that dotted line. Oh, most definitely. I would love to do that. Wonderful. And then Yeshiba, thank you so much for holding it down in the co-host department. And they're going to cut us off. But I want to thank you guys for being here tonight, and I look forward to having you on again. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks, Yeshiba. Oh, thank you very much. The doors are always open. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, Earl, I'll get back to you uh, over the weekend. Okay, sounds good. I want to pop you an email. You need to know some information, you know, and if you want to take part in it, I would really love to, you know, let you see it first, okay? Okay, great. That sounds good. I look forward to seeing it. Wonderful. You have a good weekend. Yes, have a blessed weekend. Thank you again. Uh Uh-huh. Bye-bye.